Welcome to The Developmental, a podcast about the messy, beautiful ways grown-ups grow up. Here, we explore turning the science into the day-to-day practice of adult development in teams, homes, organizations, and life. Hello, my friends. I'm very excited to welcome you to this new episode of The Developmental, where we will be exploring the links between this new field in psychology, that is adult development, and ancient wisdom, and more specifically, the practice of mindfulness. There has been criticism towards adult development theories, um, calling them out for being too Western, too psychologically uh, embedded, perhaps not inclusive enough of other ways of thinking or of other traditions. Well, today's episode will hopefully invite you to think through that argument in a different light, because as it turns out, the ancient practices such as yoga or mindfulness, the latter of which will be the focus of this conversation, actually can and do play an important role in vertical development. So developmental science may be new, but the mechanisms involved are not. Accompanying me in this episode is Michael Bunting, an expert in mindfulness, author, researcher, and a leadership expert as well. Michael is the author of the best-selling books, The Mindful Leader and A Practical Guide to Mindful Meditation. And he also co-authored Extraordinary Leadership in Australia and New Zealand with Jim Cousins and Barry Posner. His latest book, published in 2022, called Vertical Growth, is a must-read book for anyone wanting to master self-awareness and lifelong growth. I found it an exceptionally practical guide for any or all of you and us who would like to explore mindfulness as a tool for self-growth. Michael is also the founder of Awakened Mind, a mindfulness app and a leadership consultancy called WorkSmart. He and his team have worked with some of the world's most prestigious organizations in the area of executive leadership, mindfulness, mental health, adult development and scaled culture change. Several of Michael's clients are award-winning best employers, and his app has been academically researched and proven to produce substantial improvement in key areas impacting mental health and team performance. Michael lives with his wife and four children in Sydney, Australia. Very relevant for me, um, Michael is a fellow nerd, so we have had some really great conversations about the intersection of our two fields previous to this one. We're very excited to welcome you into one of our um, explorations and hopefully you'll leave this conversation with some practical tools too, which you can take into your personal growth practice or maybe even in your work. So without further ado, here is Michael. Welcome, Michael. Wonderful to be here with you, Alice. <laughs> Great to, to have you with me. And I'm very excited. I feel like this conversation has been a little while uh, coming. And we've had a few awesome, uh, long conversations nerding out on this intersection between mindfulness and vertical development. So it's really wonderful to be able to share one of these. 
with yeah, people. Yeah, great to be. Yeah, also excited to talk to you about this, and 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 it's so excited that we've collaborated. You've actually contributed to one of our programs as well. So <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've been I've been very excited to discover how how beautiful you're interweaving these these fields. Um, and and perpetually curious, really, to see how, how someone actually gets to this point. Like, how do you how do you get to um, to where you got to? So maybe I'll, I'll start with this uh, because I did share a little bit before this recording started about you know who you are professionally and uh, how much you've accomplished. Uh, but I'm interested in the in the Michael in the personal journey um, yeah. as well. So how did you come to mindfulness? How did it come to, to mean a lot? Because I know you're deeply passionate about it and you brought it into your work and you're sharing it with others. But first and foremost, you've made it a personal yeah. life journey, really. Yes. So I'll give a short answer. When I was, I grew up a very normal childhood. It wasn't in any way classically traumatized. I came to discover later that it actually was quite traumatized and that most childhoods are traumatized. In my case, it was a lot of cold trauma. It's cold trauma. So contrast between hot trauma and cold trauma. Hot trauma is an environment where you grow up where there's verbal abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. It's hot, it's invasive. Cold trauma is where all forms of inattention or neglect. So I think most kids nowadays go through a severe amount of cold trauma where the parents are on phones, devices, they're distracted, they're not really there, they're busy working lives. The child doesn't get enough connection, which then creates a deep sense of deficit and loss in the child, which then leads to narcissism and addictions and all other things that are so beautifully catered to by our society today. And uh, when I was 22 and I, I finished my university degrees in business, which my father had pushed me towards, I wanted to do psychology, he pushed me to business and I got into the business working world. I remember this absolute shock, you know, when I was meeting people in their forties and their life just seemed to be holidays, working targets, and shallow conversations about what did you eat for lunch and coffee. And I was just horrified that I thought that there was this magic, magical adult world that I was coming into that would be, uh, you know, full of secrets and mysteries. And, and, it, and it turned out to be the, quite the opposite. It was just dull and consumer-based and lifeless. And it disturbed me profoundly. And that mm. set, in, set, set in a path to searching there must be more to this existence and this life than like this mundane consume holiday work oh you know and um I was lucky because my mom had started studying east and western philosophy and going to evening classes and, and it was called a school of practical philosophy so I immediately that was my immediate point and then I studied intellectually these great teachers from you know Socrates to Sufi to you name it right east and western philosophers so see they were all pointing to this hidden world of consciousness but there was a particular point, maybe about a year and a half into it, where I was cycling. Like I, I couldn't, I would love the teachings, but I wasn't experiencing the mystery that they were talking about. And I and and meditation was introduced in that group. And it was a very loathingly and resistingly, you know, oh God, I suppose you've got to do that meditation practice, right? You can't, you can't intellectualize yourself to freedom. You can't read books to freedom. You have, you have to do the work. And uh, so I started meditating in that context. And um, and it was like a whole, it was, the way, I, the analogy I gave was like black and white TV went to color. Like everything started, like, like this whole world lit up around mm. starting, starting to develop consciousness itself. 
And uh, even though I remember for my first, particularly the first three or four years, meditation was grueling. I didn't, I wasn't that skilled. And, and frankly, the way we were taught wasn't that skilled, but it was almost like a white knuckle determined experience, right? I'd like sit down. I would meditate half an hour in the evening, half an hour in the, uh, in the morning without fail. I did that for about 10 yeah. years. And there was a efforting to it, but um, there was also this presence that grew that, started making sense that I could validate what I was reading in books in my own experience. And I could only start validating that through my own internal experience with the mindfulness. So that's where I got increasingly convinced that yes, the intellectual stuff's useful, but unless you actually do the work, the awareness work itself, it's actually quite frustrating and dry, the intellectual mm -hmm. stuff. So what 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 was it, Michael? That um, because um, I've I've been uh, playing with mindfulness in a very amateurish way <laughs> for a long time, and I've had on and off periods, and I found it so hard to have the discipline to stick to it. Um, and and I'm curious, what drove you at that young age to really, you know, the the white knuckled effort? What what was it that you were looking for, really? Yeah. When you say consciousness, what what is it? Uh, what does that mean? Um, and what was what was the mystery you were seeking in you yeah. know, making this effort? Yeah, that's a great question. There, there was what I thought I was seeking. And then when reality, I, I realized later in life, right? The first thing that captured my imagination, captivated my imagination was the term enlightenment. And enlightenment by definition was the end of all suffering, all psychological suffering, right? It was like complete freedom even the fear of death would dissipate, right? This is what these great sages would write about. And as a 22-year-old, that absolutely captivated my imagination. And there was a sense of this life, let me define this life by going for awakening, like this thing called enlightenment or awakening. And that was the primary driver. There was this like determination. I don't want to die not knowing what it is to be totally free of all fear and all death death fear or, or loss fear. I, I, need, I need to know that, right? So that was the, the drive. I came to later discover that I was also, I was an arrogant young man. And I, I came to understand that that arrogance was, was a compensation for profound wounding and pain in, my, in my, my body and mind. And that as much as I was chasing awakening, I was actually running also very hard trying to heal my own demons I didn't even know I had and uh, and also trying to escape I was running away as much as I was running towards and even yeah. the way I practiced mindfulness and I think many people do this they practice mindfulness unwittingly to try and escape their ordinariness of their lives for a while and I came to realize that that is unsustainable as well. And I yeah. think that's a big mistake a lot of people make with mindfulness. It's like, I'll go and do my Zen for half an hour. It's great. But it doesn't really give me that. Like, it's a lot of sacrifice and time to meditate, but it's not really giving me that. I know it's good for me, but I'm not really feeling my marriage changing, my, my parenting change. I'm not really seeing dramatic change. So, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice to have, but I won't continue. And I think that, mm -hmm. I think that's where it's hard to sustain, where you're not really seeing a, a deep shifts in your actual change. Yeah. I would love to, to 
pause and double click, click on this for a moment because and, and it is something that we've touched on in other conversations around the spiritual bypassing um and i do see it a lot um around me as well and i think it's worth just yeah pausing for a moment and investigating and by spiritual bypassing we mean exactly what you were saying people taking up spiritual practices like mindfulness yes um as a way to pursue a goal but also escape something that is just hard to sit with yes. and in in my own research i found that those emotions hard to sit with and i know you found it in your own work are really crucial to our growth absolutely so yeah what i'm curious what helped you see that like how did you come to realize oh i'm actually bypassing the real work yeah. here which is way more messy and uncomfortable and painful uh, than even the huge effort of sitting on the cushion and, and meditating for an hour every day. Yeah. So the first thing I just want to say technically for listeners, and this is an important technical point for me, that the origins of, I mean, the origins of mindfulness, mindfulness is like breathing. It's like you can't be watching this if you're not mindful. And the cultivation of mindfulness is more of a deliberate, it's like fitness is natural to human beings. You couldn't get up and go and get a glass of water if you didn't have some degree of fitness in the body. And then going to gym is a, is a deliberate cultivation of more fitness or more refined fitness. Same with mindfulness, like mindfulness is a natural thing. But most of the time, if you look at the origins of the disciplined set of practices around mindfulness, they mostly, you'll find most of them in today, they, they are, originate from the Buddha right, uh, from Buddhism and the Buddha. Now, there's obviously lots of other traditions that meditate too. It's just I wanted to make a quick technical note that the Buddha never used the word spiritual once in his entire life, not once, and considered my, never considered mindfulness a spiritual pursuit. Or in fact, the entire Buddhism is not a spiritual pursuit in the way we think of it as, as a sort of soul and outer world. It was just a simple way of developing awareness to see the truth of the mind and to see the truth of things, to meet them, with a degree of honesty, as my, my son beautifully put this morning, mindfulness is about meeting the meeting the world with honesty and awareness, mm -hmm. meeting it with full courage and honesty and awareness. Now, my now coming. I to, love that. Now coming. That is to, so wise. So coming to your question, um, I think for me, what happened is I had a mentor that 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 basically financially cheated me. Uh, and we were deeply dedicated to mindfulness and, and we're dedicated to honesty and consciousness. And this behavior was so out of line with what I thought. It broke my heart completely. And, and then it spurred this question, how is it possible for someone to be so dedicated to mindfulness, so yeah. dedicated to truthfulness and still behave in such a way we now, you know, from their shadow, such a dysfunctional way that it, that then compelled me to start searching out what was that all about. Yeah. And it was then that I began to understand bypassing and that we collectively, me and this, this mentor and a group of us had a whole way of bypassing um, a lot of messy stuff around the human existence. And it was Enneagram work and then cathartic work and depth psychological work and then and then ultimately inside mindfulness practice that began to help me really look at the mess of being human right and the pain of being human and the again to mindfulness to meet that with compassion and presence and really look at it was yes. actually the and that's when my own sense of liberation and joy really accelerated and then I began to understand 
um, I just began to understand that the, the, the you can't outrun this is the quote you cannot outrun your own shadow and we delusionally think we can but you can't and it it always snaps back uh, mm -hmm. if you don't, you don't look at it so can yeah. you give an example Michael of what what does it mean to actually stop and face your shadow what would that even look yeah. like how do you know you're doing that I'll use, and I hope my son won't mind, but I'll use an example of my 25-year-old son. He, he, I recently spent some time with him in Europe and, and he, the, the whole experience was very, let's go to the next thing, let's do the next thing, let's do the next thing. It was very hyped up. And, uh, and then also he started sniping at me. There was these little Barbie comments coming towards, Barb-filled comments coming to me. I just stopped him at some point and I said, you know, like, let's just, just can we? It was really. It was actually the last evening he was with me for three days. I was like, "What's going on for you?" You know, and and eventually we unpacked this sense of anxiety, but underneath that was this deep anger towards the mm -hmm. world. Now he's in the sustainability business, uh, and he's really angry, right, and justifiably so, with how things are on our on our planet. But it's also directed at individuals and. And I, we began to, I asked the question, let's just feel the anxieties, they feel anxiety. And then as soon as you start feeling the anxiety, it would quickly come up as a rage. And I was like, oh, okay. So if you look at it, you've got anxiety is your way, your, your need to, to move is actually a running away from mm -hmm. rage. So then if we just feel the rage, let's just feel it and really feel it, right? And then sometimes that, you know, like shout out or whatever, feel it. What he quickly came to discover is that actually there's this deep calm Underneath, mm -hmm. but for many people they bypass they just spend their whole lives on the anxiety chasing but then there's things underneath that that we're typically unaware of that are driving our behavior maybe yeah. that's a complex example let me use a really simple example why can't that person just understand me the classic complaint people have right yep what in that complaint usually is a world of denial and a world of shadow, that simple complaint. It might be they don't understand you because you never, you never listen to them, right? And you never bother trying to understand them. That could be something that's driving it, but you never see it. So they, they become me. Yeah. It might be that the very agony of why people can't understand is that you're deeply needing people's approval to feel, feel okay about yourself, right? Mm. And so you're doing things that are like you're begging for approval and they, can't bring themselves to give it to you because they feel yucky about it that there's this world within a world there's this whole other world happening underneath that the vast majority of us don't want to look at we want to bypass and yeah. we just think if i can just get that person to understand me then all will be well you know the rainbows yeah. will come the angels will sing and i'll feel complete yeah it works so looking yeah. at that underneath world that really is driving the show is so critical because if we can't look at it, we can't outgrow it to use growth work that we have the saying in our work that which we cannot name, see, describe and be curious about. We can never outgrow. Yeah. And that is so, so consistent with, um, with some of the, the research coming in through adult development, right? Where somebody like Robert Keegan will say, you know, if you, the growth is about looking at what you before were looking through. So I think it's so beautiful in your example with your son, you were able to look at something, his behavior in that case, his agitation that he was in that moment looking through, he was just behaving. He was not necessarily 
pausing to reflect on his behavior. But then it, it's a remarkable that he was able to hear you when you said, let's look at this. What is this? What is underneath? So then you supported him to look at what he before was looking through and some precious insight came from that. Yes. So it, mindfulness and this intersection um, with lifelong development um, is about really, as if I understand, you know, your story um, and your meaning here is about looking at what we before were looking through, but very, systematically day in, day out, catching our behavior and being curious about what is it here yeah. that's motivating me to react like this or triggering me or what what is it that I'm feeling and why am yeah. I feeling so getting really curious about your own patterns, um, even if it's uncomfortable and what you find you might not really like, it's not yeah, a version s- of yourself you'd necessarily be proud of, really. Oh. So my son put it beautifully this morning, the same son, I had a chat with him this morning, and he said, I'm starting to see that the skill set around mindfulness, there's two things to mindfulness, there's deep honesty, it's the, it's the commitment to be honest with yourself, and and then the skill set to actually be able to see things accurately are intertwined. They're like, they're like mutual friends. In other words, I, want, I might have the intention to be honest with myself, but I just don't have the awareness to see what's going on. Right. Right. Or I have the awareness to see what's going on, but then I choose to go back into denial and pretend it's not there. And that there's this beautiful virtuous cycle, as he described it, between really being honest with yourself and really having the skill set to start seeing. And I think this is a, you know, you and I had a, had a chat where, where the, the idea of separating out mindfulness practice from growth work or having the, or trying to do growth work without mindfulness is absurdity to me, because if you take away the, the words mindfulness or growth, the very process that mindfulness is, is the process of looking at and then skillfully, and this is critical, it's the whole skill set of where to look, how to mm-hmm. look, and where to look, and then once you look, what to do with what you're mm-hmm. looking at. So it's the it's the it's the where, the how, and the process of meeting the the pain, and and that's why there's this huge body of work, right? Huge around that skill set, and not having that skill set, I often see in vertical growth work, when I, when I listen, not you, Alice, but several people when they go like, but how do you actually deliberately grow? It gets really yeah. vague. It's like experiences and, you know, you, you got to let them, and it's, it's really vague. It's not precise and disciplined. Whereas you go to the world of developmental mindfulness, what we call development mindfulness, it's very precise. I mean, it could not yeah. be precise. It's technically precise on exactly how to do this stuff. And at the ultimate level, it's even seeing the structure of the ego, even seeing. So, for example, one of the practices I've done on, on meditation practice is when we say I am talking to you, just to use an example, we actually look at who's this I am referring to that's talking to you. This is an mm-hmm. assumption. Oh, I'm talking to you. And then you yeah. actually, with, with mindful practice, you literally investigate where does this I live? Yeah. Where, Who is the I? What is this I? So you get down to that level of making that instead of looking at that, instead of looking through it, because our entire lives, we look through I. I colors yep. everything. And so mindfulness gives you the ability to go right to that level of, of looking right at the I. Yep. 
and and that is very very aligned to some some of my more recent reflections around uh to come to your point what is it exactly that grows and how do we grow because i do think it gets very abstract and and people want to practice and i know you've written this wonderful book which i read and i loved vertical growth where you 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 literally unpack what we're talking about here uh, how do you do this um, but identity can, comes as one element that actually develops through the course of uh, adult development and even starting to question who the I is or, you know, what is your identity? What are the different aspects of that I, of that me that shows up in different moments is a function of, of development and actively inquiring into that supports development, which, which kind of brings us to this uh, juicy, nerdy part of our conversation, because I, I would love to unpack a little bit more these um connections between vertical development and mindfulness practice let let's focus on the practice because i know that is really um important to you there is research um connecting the two in the sense of showing that people who practice meditation techniques over years they're more likely you know if you measure them before or after to grow vertically so we do know that this practice supports vertical development, but it would be interesting to reflect on how, and you've, you've started to touch on it um, a little bit more. So what have you learned about, you know, what is the crucial, what are the crucial ingredients? Because you take this work into organization and you support leaders in e incorporating these practices and organizations nowadays are going, we want more later stage leaders. We want more complex thinkers. We want all of that, but very often it becomes a, a sort of a chase, a sort of a race towards the later stages. And we know that's not really how it works. So what have you learned? What have you learned about this intersection? So I think- uh, I'll I see you smiling there. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you one deeper, just a nerdy answer on, on the, the, the role of mindfulness and growth and how we see it. And then I'll talk about the, the business stuff. I just think the first thing is for some reason, we need stability, human beings need stability and even the process of looking at something instead of looking through it requires some stable platform to look at it right i need some and i think the process of growth at least in my own personal experience is by definition it's destabilizing it's very destabilizing so you know when i began like a couple of years ago i had a major crisis in my viewpoints around who i was in my work right and what i was doing in my work and I was profoundly destabilized. And I remember I had this amazing conversation with uh, a Zen teacher, a, a kind of post-Zen teacher who said to me, what's going on? I was in a, not in a good place. And I said, I've lost my life purpose. I have no sense of life purpose anymore. And his response was, how lucky are you? That's awesome. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's not the right answer. And then he said to me, he, he, we had this amazing conversation of the destabilizer because life purpose gives us stability, right? It gives us a sense of I am here and I'm going there and I'm doing this. And when that life purpose disappears, it's like, who am I? Where am I going? And what is this? Right? Everything gets destabilized, which of course is yep. the process of growth, right? Because there's, I'm, I'm losing an identity. I'm shifting and I'm looking at an, at an identity. And then he said to me, this lovely compassionate moment he said do you really if you really need life purpose michael let me give you a let me give you an, how you can do that and he said do you like coffee i said i love coffee so he says well when you make your coffee in the morning make it your life purpose to make a great coffee that's it right and it like the penny just dropped for me right I and mean, what he was talking about is make life your life purpose being present 
Mm-hmm. Just being present. And what's interesting, which is a mindfulness practice, and what's really interesting is that when presence becomes our home, and presence mm-hmm. by its definition, it's both stable and unstable. Because when we're present, there's this ex- experience, it doesn't make scientific sense, but experientially, we feel very grounded and solid when we're present. And yet, we're in very direct contact with the instability of everything. Because you could you could encounter anything in yourself or outside of yourself when you're fully present. So you don't know what you're going to get, but you do know that you're fully there experiencing it, whatever it is. Exactly. So there's a lovely expression in in mindfulness practice. You cannot step in the same river twice. Right. You can go to the same river, but that river is different. And that life is constantly unstable. So at one level, you come deeply at peace with the deep instability of everything because that's just the nature of reality. And at the same level, you're stable in the instability. That's the, yeah. I think, technically the greatest gift of what mindfulness gives us because the process of growth is disrupting, at least one of the processes for me, it's disrupting the existing viewpoints, right? And invariably seeing that those viewpoints are limited because of their rigidity. This They are a fixed viewpoint of something that gave us a sense of meaning-making of our world, but they were inherently not true by, by purest definition, because no viewpoint, as the, even the Buddha said, there is no, he, he called it, take no viewpoints, take no views. It's, a, it's one of the eight premises for awakening is let all views go. It's like hold him as utility, not as truth. No mm-hmm. view is an inherent truth because reality is just constantly dancing and shifting. So that's, that to me is the greatest gift of mindfulness. It gives me the stability to handle the disruption of growth. Yeah. So, so, and that my identity sits more in presence than a what's called a constructed identity in mindfulness. It, I'm I'm more comfortable that my identity is awareness itself, which is fluid and, and open, not the story of Michael Bunting, and that the story of yeah. Michael Bunting is literally, it's called in mindfulness practice at the the pointy end of advanced mindfulness practice. It's called the constructed identity. It's literally the words constructed identity. So you'll hear these weird things. Like there is no self. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you don't exist. It means there's no, no constructed identity has any reality. The presence itself, that which can witness the constructed identity, that's real, the presence, but not the constructed identity because it can be let go of. This uh, this does remind me of a conversation I had with a with a senior leader a couple of years ago who was talking about how his identity was deeply challenged by so when COVID came he found himself for the first time in a position where he felt he had no control he had no idea what to do and he was leading this ten thousand um, people organization and people were looking at him for solutions and he was um, trying to articulate how discombobulating it was to feel so powerless. Um, And somebody asked him, he was being interviewed as part of a leadership development program about his experience. Um, And how did you deal with that? And he said, look, I tried to do what I'd always done, like fix it, solve it, uh, work through it, stay strong. Don't talk about it because I felt like if I, if I, told people how disoriented I was I would just seem like useless like why am I there and he found that that just didn't work so he had to kind of slow down and and really face the the powerlessness and the fear and the anxiety and just be present with it 
to be able to then open up to his board and say, guys, I have no clue. Uh, But I do, I do believe that together we can find a way out of this. Uh, But I just have to accept I can't, I'm not going to be the one with the answers here. Uh, But it was a loss. It was, he was talking about how he was grieving that part of his identity because he had to face that. No, I've just entered uncharted territory and that identity of the fixer, the problem solver, just, I just hit its limit. There's no way I can find my way out of this with that persona. I've got to become the person who is vulnerable, inquires, brings other brains in, really co-creates. Yeah. Uh, and that can be super hard to do. It's a beautiful thing. I just had a very similar interview with one of our team on this exact thing. He basically, you, you've just described him. And <laughs> he described it like that too. And, and There was, must be more, more than one leader yeah. going through yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And he described it as, he described it as when I'm fixing and I'm doing, I'm the champion. I'm the one who's rescuing everybody. I'm the awesome one, right? And there's a deep, deep level of image management in that. Like, and then when I when I open up and I tell the truth of what I don't know and I tell the truth, that whole identity can't exist because now I need help. I'm not the one who needs help. I'm the one who does help. And it's fascinating how we we get caught. And he put it beautifully: is that is that the image management trumps reality? It, it, it's you're no longer you're not acknowledging reality and its needs. So we love, yep. I love the term psychological flexibility. And that's one of the terms we use in our work for growth because I have the flexibility to meet reality as is required, not through that's my rigid identity. Yeah. I do want to maybe open up a bit of the black box of a vertical development here because I know the two of us found a really interesting link, which I'd love you to talk about. Um, so in order to have that psychological flexibility, you need to be able to withstand some very, very negative emotions in the moment. And we were talking about before uh, in our previous conversations, how confronting that is for leaders who have been used to being successful, who, who feel that they've got a lot invested in that image management, consciously or unconsciously. So one thing that I found in my own research has been that the, the leaders who do, do grow from adversity tend to be those who find a way to sit, to accept the really painful emotions, anxiety, fear, confusion. Confusion, I find, is a hugely challenging one for, for leaders, for high-performing people. And the way the people in the research did that was they looked at those emotions as opportunities for growth. So the story they told themselves in their heads about that, what that emotion means was not, it means I'm weak. It means I'm losing it. I'm losing my touch. No, they were saying, oh, it means there's some growth here. There's something that I haven't figured out yet. There's an opportunity. So that allowed them to pour curiosity like an antidote almost over the negative emotion that made it bearable enough for them to to then find that psychological um, flexibility. And I remember when I shared this piece of my research with you, you told me, ah, there's actually a very specific type of mindfulness that does just that. It trains people to build what I called in my own research, the contrasting emotion space, a negative plus curiosity as a positive to create that space of, yes, I can tolerate this discomfort. Therefore I can, I can change something. I can do something about it. So can you talk about what that type of practice is that with a mindfulness lens, you can actually do to build your, this contrasting emotion space. Build the contrasting emotional space in the growth muscle. Yes. The growth muscle. 
Okay, so pause. I'm just, I think this is the courier. One second. Yeah, yeah. So the technique involves, let's just talk about two kinds of mindfulness. There's two kinds of formal mindfulness practice. There's what we call concentration, stabilizing serenity practices. They're one gang or group. And then this other group called, it, it, the original word was insight mindfulness practice or what we call developmental mindfulness practices. And let me just keep it really simple for your listeners. Most of what people are taught around mindfulness in the modern world is all concentration, serenity, mindfulness, because it's cool. It makes sense for well-being. And, you know, like, and so a lot of people go, but a lot of people we speak to in the growth development space have not put the dots together between mindfulness and growth for good reason, because they think mindfulness is just the serenity practices. Now, what the serenity practices are, the calming or concentration practices are by technique Let's say you sit down to meditate and you use an object of attention for your, like use your breath, or some people use a mantra. The, the point of it is, is to bring the mind to a deep state of present-based concentration. That's what's called concentration practice. And then the goal is serenity. Like there's a point where the mind stabilizes completely. None of the distracted stuff's going on in the mind. And it's just, you know, the breath or just the mantra. And, it, and it's a beautiful, profoundly nourishing place for you to go and this perfect stillness right and that usually is the beginning in and if you're doing an insight practice you get there then you begin the insight practice for most people it's like that's the end of the, the deal that's sort of like i'm calm and so let's say for example you have an ad you have an addiction behavior around ice cream i'll just use a really random example um you go and meditate for 20 minutes or whatever, half an hour, and, and, and you are serene and all your addiction tendencies sort of come set, settle down and there's no, and you're just happier. Right? You come out of the meditation practice and you go sit down on your couch and something happens that's distressful. And before you know it, you're eating the ice cream because it's a compensatory behavior around undealt with anxiety or undealt with stuff inside yourself. So, so meditation or mindfulness is like a break from your normal self. It's yeah. not journey. It's like it's taking an aspirin. It just calms you, <laughs> calms the yeah. pain for a for a little yes. while. Yeah. And in and of itself, yeah. very useful. It does actually. It's like good rest. It's like good exercise. It's good for you. What it doesn't do though is it doesn't give you the skill set to actually manage what's going on in the process of dysfunction or addiction. So I would, in many ways, what I would describe growth as is the dropping away of addiction. It's another way of describing growth. That how it's, mm -hmm. it's a dropping away of addiction to being right, addiction to knowing, addiction to being in control, addiction to substances or addiction to TV. It's like where, where presence, where there's more and more, more growth inside that I'm less and less addicted. I'm that involved for more, more open wise handle complexity. So the insight practices, the technique and philosophies, but is different. The original, the very original and I'm just being technically nerdy now for a second. The original point of the insight practices wasn't calmness or concentration. The point was to see the nature of reality as it actually is. And the primary thing you want to see is that nothing is stable and nothing is um, fixed, solid, or it's the nature of impermanence. And when yeah. you... So it would be almost radical honesty, inside and out. Radical inside honesty, and out. seeing it's things really, as they are. Correct. It's really seeing... Because the, the, the principle of mindfulness, mindfulness was never set up for the purposes of adult growth. The original intention of mindfulness was to relieve suffering, to stop all psychological suffering. 
and therefore all our actions don't inflict suffering on others. It's this deep commitment to joy and love and compassion and kindness and honesty mm. and ethics, right? It's the, it's the reduction of suffering in our society, in ourselves. And so when I'm looking at impermanence, we, we ask what creates suffering? Primarily what creates suffering is, is uh, holding on, grabbing, fixation called tana, thirsting and fixing. When I see that things are really impermanent, then all, fi- all grabbing on lets go, which is also funnily enough connected with adult development, right? I'm not fixing yep. deep one because I can let it go because I see nothing stable. But interestingly enough, there's this side effect, right? That's, that, that's where I think from a more modern perspective, growth happens is let's say I'll give you the difference of techniques. If I'm, if I'm meditating and I'm anxious and I f- there's a lot of anxiety in my system, the thoughts are going mad. In a concentration practice, what I do is I go, I ignore the thoughts, I ignore the anxiety in the body and I just focus on the breath. And then the system yep. must calm down. In an insight or development practice, I don't do that at all. I let go of the breathing as my focus of attention. And I bring my attention straight into the anxiety in the body. And I become mm-hmm. deeply interested in the anxiety in the body. And that So you're a leader. You're practicing this. You'd feel the anxiety in your body. And you'd, you'd put your attention on exactly the thing that you would most want to ignore, really, because from. it's so unpleasant, right? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So you made it. You make it the focus of your meditation to observe how that anxiety plays out. Is it a flutter in your stomach? Is it like your breath is constricted? Your heart is racing? What is going yes. on physically? What are the physical manifestations of that? Right. In in some sense, you could say yes. Exactly. It's two. It's almost two questions. Uh, what's anxiety feel like? Take the word anxiety away, and let's just feel it. Is it butterflies? Is, I'm I'm becoming investigatory interested. What what's going on? What does this feel like? That's the first. So you're curious thing. about it. Yes, and then what happens in that curiosity is magical because what what one begins to see. Now you can't engineer this. You have to just do the looking, and the looking in this case means feeling, feeling the feelings. Right? It's a form of looking, being curious about it. Is you then begin to see the secondary assumptions, the secondary reactions. So, for example, many of us are anxious about being anxious. So we get anxious, mm-hmm. and then we get anxious about being anxious. But we never see that double layer of anxious about being anxious until we bring our attention into and really look, and then we go, "Oh, it's interesting. I have a particular relationship with this anxiety, which is resistance, which is panic." Yep. And then I notice second, and my seeing becomes much more refined. Now, the other thing that happens is in the process of seeing, I begin to start realizing that it's okay. I can manage anxiety. I can sit with anxiety. I'm not destroyed by it. There's nothing bad happening here. I develop this muscle, the ability to sit with, feel with anxiety. Now, once that's developed, I then begin to see underneath the anxiety what's really going on here at another level. But crucially, I develop the muscle to no longer be driven by the anxiety. Yeah. Another way, because I think all dysfunctional behavior, and I, I mean, to, when I say dysfunctional behavior, behavior that feels good in the short term, but long term does damage to us and others, I would define dysfunctional behavior. It's driven by feeling avoidance. It's all driven yeah. by feeling We're trying to avoid the nasty feelings. Yeah, the dreaded experience, like anything but this is the way we describe it. And it was so beautifully illustrated. Now, bringing it into leadership for you, this was beautifully illustrated by uh, Stephen Barrett, who at the time was the global head of HR for Novartis, 
where he said to me, he gave me this pre and post mindfulness comment, right? Now I'm using Stephen openly like this because it's published in our book, right? This is not, this is public knowledge. Stephen said, before mindfulness, I prided myself on being an extremely rational person who only made rational decisions, right? Post mindfulness, I've begun to discover that I'm highly irrational and highly driven by emotion even though I was blinded. I said, okay, we'll explain more. He said, well, okay, let me give you an easy example. Some people, uh, I would see they're not performing in the way I want them to perform. So then, <clears throat> so out of my own emotional avoidance of the uncomfortable conversation, I, I rationally think to myself, well, you know, they, they're smart, they're technical, they'll get it, don't worry, they'll work it out. Right? So I ignore the, the reality of me actually having to deal with it because what's actually happening is emotional avoidance. I'm scared of the, of the emotions that will come up if I go and confront that person. So then yeah. what happens is they carry on badly and eventually they don't deliver. Then I'm angry with them and then I start micromanaging them. And then they're confused because am I powered or am I micromanaged? And at the root of all of that is then me, mis I mis not only mismanage my anxiety for having the honest conversation, I then mismanage my anger. And then I, and then I mismanage. And all of this before mindfulness, I thought, I was just a very irrational man. I gave them a chance and now they're not doing it. So now I have to micromanage them. And all these rational thoughts that backed up my rational behavior, but looking beneath, it's it's all driven by emotional avoidance Emotions. and emotional mismanagement. Yeah. I think this is an example that will resonate with so many people. And it also brings up a question that I've heard a lot. If any, particularly in the in the business environment where rationality is so prized. If you sit with your emotions, you know, you do the inside mindfulness practice, you really feel your anxiety in your body, you, you acknowledge you have all of these difficult emotions. Are you going to get lost in them? Are yeah. they going to overwhelm you? Are you going to lose your capacity for objectivity, for rational thought, for all of those things that are so useful and you want to hold on to? So what would you give people from having done this work with hundreds of leaders over the years as, you know, the reassurance? Because in my own work, I did find that when people sit with the difficult emotion and put curiosity on top, it actually creates a space of clarity for reason. Interestingly enough, it, it opens up possibilities. Yeah. But I'm curious what, what you found in both in your own practice and also supporting yeah. hyper-rational leaders to get in touch with their... Yes. Um, Yes, I, I remember, I mean, I'll give you a funny conversation that highlights us more broadly, where we were working with a group, an organization in hospitality, and uh, all the, I asked all the leaders, so how are you, how are you have been handling the COVID experience? Because imagine their business got killed through COVID. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we put on a brave face and we really like, we tell people it's going to be good and everything's going to be great and we're all good. And then I said, okay, so, and, and, and so when you, your boss does that to you, your boss everybody's got a boss of a boss right when your boss does that to you how does that you how do you feel about that and then they all said i feel a little bit like am i the only one that's like messed up and struggling here and i said okay so let me get this straight you when your boss does that to you it fundamentally makes you feel insecure and then you then go on and then tell your direct reports that you do the exact same action right everything's got to be great and you haven't put the dots together that you feel insecure. And the reason why they haven't put the dots together primarily is because they're not investigating their experience while that, while that 
that muse is landing because they don't have the skill to investigate their experience. And that's a beautiful example of irrational and irrational, right? So if I rationally object, watch my experience as my boss is telling me, oh my God, everything's going to be great and it's all great. And I start feeling inadequate and insecure. If I notice that feeling in that moment, I notice the connection between that, then I can make a much more rational choice with my own direct reports and go, all right, there's a good chance this is going to happen when I do this. I, I, there's no connecting of the dots of emotional drivers and the reality of experience. The second thing to your point, which is hilarious, right? I remember I was working with a particular leader in Singapore and, and I asked her, what do you do with your difficult feelings? And she says, like, if I, I just, I just, get on with it and I bury them. And I'm like, so I would like laughingly said, how's that working out for you? And she says, I'm progressively feeling more like anxious and that sort of, I know. So I said, I asked the question, and this is an example of multiple, like my whole career, there's been two dominant complaints about mindfulness, this year 20 something of this field. The first is this, Ill, this, this complete delusional view that if I feel my feelings, which is exactly what she said, she, she said, there's this pervasive sadness is how she described it, right? And I said, what would happen if you felt this sadness? It's a simple intellectual question. She said, I'll get lost in it forever. And I yes. said, just intellectually, and never mind experientially, I said, so you believe feelings have a permanent shelf life? That, that like you can literally, it's literally possible to feel sadness and then never come out of sadness. You actually think that's possible. Um, and she like got confused and I, I said, okay, you believe in permanence in a world where there is no permanence. You literally, it's literally delusional. It's like you believe in fairy tales. That's how crazy it is because all how did that How did that land? <laughs> well, she was sort of initially like shocked. And it's so obvious when you look at her, it's so obvious, right? But for some reason, the delusional mind, because it doesn't investigate, like we talked about, it doesn't have the process to investigate. Mm. It sits in a world of fears and delusions that are not are based on literally fairy tales, they're not real. And so then um, I said, well, let's, let's just, at that particular day, I happened to be feeling sad too. And I said, you know, I'm feeling really sad. And guess what? I'm doing my job right now. Is it possible to be sad and do your job? That was a mind blowing for us possible to be sad and doing my job right yeah, yes yeah. is that possible so then what we did is we felt into the sadness we identify because the problem is when you keep it conceptual it's still scary but if you take sadness the word sadness away and you say just report how it is in your body in your guts in your chest right now is it hard or soft is it hot or cold is it moving or still we use these these are part of the skill set of mindfulness bringing things down to base experience not all the elaboration of the mind which is terrifies us oh, we don't hot. talk about feelings we really try to describe the sensations the, the experienced the felt feelings. experiences and then you know before you know it she was crying and then within two minutes she was laughing and then there was this palpable lightness and i just asked her she just stopped and i said what's just happened now you know and then we just unpack we just simply unpacked what happened for her mm. oh it turns out sadness is not permanent would you believe it? I mean, shock and horror. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens, and this is again when we talk about in mindfulness, what's called the second arrow, or the or the when the when the what's this is how it was originally described. When the unmindful mind sees meets pain, it adds pain to the pain. What what does that mean? It's called the second. The original analogy is when someone gets hit with an arrow, they pick up an arrow and start stabbing themselves with the second arrow. Put the second arrow down. The second arrow is the resistance to the feeling. 
Now the resistance which only adds to the to the pain it, of the feeling. It adds to the pain of feeling, and more importantly, it must lead to addiction fixated behavior. It's binary. It's hard to accept this emotionally and intellectually. You feel the feeling or you go dysfunctional. Take your pick. It's black or white. It's like you're either going to feel the feeling and embrace it, or you're going to go towards your rigid old coping mechanisms that don't actually serve your life to deal with that feeling. Easy example, jealousy. Let's take a really easy example, jealousy. So what is jealousy? You could say it's the fear of being alone, or it's the fear of abandonment. You, if, you, if you can't feel that feeling and you can't befriend that feeling and then eventually, quote unquote, conquer that feeling where it no longer rules you, as soon as the feelings of insecurity and it's possible, you will go for the controlling behavior. What time did you come home last night? Who did you see? When did you see? And all of that behavior is literally destroying your relationship. And it's based on the fact that you don't have the skill set to go, what does, when I'm jealous, what, where's that in the body? Can I sit with that in the body? Can I feel that? Can I know that? Can I breathe with that? Can I befriend that? To the point when it's not scary to feel that anymore. Now, if it's not scary to feel that anymore, then I'm not driven by the compensatory controlling behavior anymore. Yeah. I've now grown. I'm free. Yeah, that's such a beautiful example. And I think you, you said something really important here that might be worth highlighting. The, the outcome of doing this is not not feeling those feelings anymore. We will still feel them. But the, the idea of befriending them is it's all about not being ruled by them not being scared that they'll last forever not feeling like we're we're going to get lost in this pain and never come out it's going to impair my ability to function you'll learn that you it's okay to feel your feelings and you can actually navigate that pretty skillfully yeah uh, and, and it's not overwhelming of, anymore yes and i would also say to people one of the things we ask in the beginning of our programs usually and we're usually working with phds and masters and highly smart people and we say that were any of you guys taught through all your former education to skillfully work with your mental and emotional world. And yeah. everybody pretty much 99 Nowhere, never. If they did, they found it on their own, not, you know. And it's like, well, then how come we would possibly, you're all smart. How could you possibly think that you'd be good at this? And have you ever appreciated the consequences this is having on your life and your leadership? Because we, we see it again, like we have a leader we're working with right now. She's, she had a, she, she, controlling behavior was, has served her really well. And now she's reached a, point in her career where she's now the leader of really smart self-directing people and that controlling behavior is literally killing her career right now and it's a beautiful yeah. example where there's the invitation to growth right what you got you here is not going to get you there and we can see that part of that controlling behavior is so much fear she's got a deep association of losing control equals lots of pain for her from her childhood from that conditioning and it's like we if she doesn't know how to navigate that that those panicked feelings of pain when she's really empowering people, that those panicked feelings are going to want, they're going to snap her back into the control and she will literally end up losing her job. And so yeah. if we think that, if you think that not being able to work with your emotions is unimportant, if you think it's unimportant, it's, it's, it's just because you haven't, you just haven't, I don't know how to describe this without sounding cheeky, but it's like, it's like you, it's like you, you just haven't really gotten it yet because it's so obvious and fundamental to the process. Another, sorry to be over enthusiastic, another beautiful example is in our personal relationships. You know, in our personal, our romantic relationships, we all long to love and be loved. All of us. We want to love with all our hearts and we want to be loved with all, 
you know, and receive all of that love. And yet we find ways, we find ways to not love and to resist and to sabotage. And it's crazy, right? You, t- you show me one person who would say, my relationship, my romantic relationship is meeting my perfectly my needs for deep love and connection and growth and to love and be loved, right? There's all these other things that go on, right? Sabotages. And the primary reason why is because opening the heart and really loving is emotionally terrifying. And letting love in is emotionally terrifying. It, it touches on vulnerabilities that are just, you know, we long for it, but vulnerabilities we can't handle. Unless we learn how to navigate those vulnerabilities with skill and stability, and we become less afraid of the pain and the hurt and the loss, we never really get the very love we seek. We actually spend our yeah. lives longing for what we are, we ourselves are getting in the way of. Yeah. Um, resonate with that so much. And I'm smiling because um, the the previous uh, podcast episode I recorded was uh, with my closest friend, who's also a yoga teacher and a leadership development uh, expert herself. And uh, she was talking about how their yoga, the, the, the yoga swami that she's learned the craft from uh, used to tell the group relationships, romantic relationships in particular, are not about making you happy. They're about making you grow through the limitations of the other. And what I'm hearing almost the, the add-on to that in what you're saying is if you accept they're there to help you grow, then love becomes the conscious choice to lean into that growth and face your own limitations and kind of get into that that hard work that a beautiful, loving relationship actually is. Yes. So don't stand in the way of your own love. <laughs> exactly. It's like we always say, you know, the, we have seen the enemy and there is us, right? And which is not a right passion, yeah. but yeah. And it's beautiful because you get back a sense of agency. And I think that's what I most love about adult development work is, is that the more we grow, the more we have agency over the, over the, our lives. We have a more, we have more and more sense that our happiness is, is, is really like the Sean Acor study, the 90, 10, 90% of it is the way we think and 10% our external life. It becomes a reality yeah. as we grow because we begin to see that we can always choose consciousness and we can always see um, where and how we are contributing to our own suffering. And in the seeing of that, which most of us are dedicated to not see, and as soon as we not see it, then we believe that, that our pain is caused by the outside world. We become a helpless victim. Um, but in the seeing of it, we regain this profound sense of agency and the ability to constantly adapt and grow yep michael i think i mean <laughs> we could spend three days unpacking all the richness um that you've you've given us in you know this short time but i would love to just zoom out as we're near the end of this conversation because you're you're what two decades into this doing this work yourself and yeah. keep on unpeeling the onion for yourself, but you're also taking it into organizations and you've got a beautiful program, which you've just uh, rewritten and upgraded that you're offering organizations and you're also offering it as a, an open offering. What's driving you? Like what's, what's your highest hope? Why do you believe this type of really personal intimate work in its essence is actually crucial for leadership for organizations for the future and i know you're so deeply passionate about your work so yeah I, i'd love to hear what what is it that's keeping you and what are you 
really hooked by that's you know helping you yeah. push forward with this and want to bring it to more organizations i i think just the latest way and to keep it really simple and not go on another two-hour reply is it was beautifully summed up by the recent research. It was a, a quote from Robert, Robert Keegan where he said, everybody's doing two jobs in an organization. There's their real job, the actual work they have to do. And there's this whole other job called image management, which is hiding weaknesses, being political, you know, over perfectionizing, perfection, perfectioning slides, uh, conversations after the conversations, this whole other political and then we've researched it, uh, to be fair, not really disciplined research, but polling more than 5,000 people on this, right, in multiple organizations. And the average people say is 40%. So they're wasting 40% of their time and energy on image management. So they only 60% of their time is actually spent on real work. The rest of it's just this whole other hiding political game. And everybody knows, knows this. And then when you inquire more deeply, is so much suffering that comes with that. There's so much suffering nobody enjoys it and so how is it that we as a human species keep producing things that really really don't serve us and hurt us and at the very core of that we we when we investigate it more deeply is a, is a deep belief system and it, it's echoed beautifully in gabor mate's work which is that for most of us when we're growing up when we're little we have a we have these two fundamental needs for authenticity what we call integrity the need for integrity to be our true selves, right? Our most functional, happy, true selves. But we also have the need for attachment with our parents. And whenever there's a conflict, whenever I, when being my true self earns disapproval from mom and dad, the child will always sacrifice their authenticity and integrity for the attachment because we need the attachment for survival. So for most of us, we grow up in a world where we do not believe it's possible Deeply inside our nervous system, we do not believe it's possible to have the deepest integrity with ourselves, to show up with absolute honesty and integrity, and to have safety and belonging and approval and connection. We don't believe those two are mutually together. We, 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 we sacrifice. With, I have to show up a certain way. That's not me. Mm-hmm. I'm not even aware of it anymore, which we call image management. And I think that the deepest yearning in our work the deepest why for our work is that it's like to help organizations develop in a way where where authenticity integrity deep integrity not dysfunctional authenticity real integrity and organizational effectiveness and belonging and compassion all exist together not only will they make more effective businesses they they do we know they make much more efficient you just take out 40 percent of burnt resources but they actually become a place where people literally heal themselves you literally not mm. you healing yourself through the workplace because you're starting to re-experience something where you you can be really honest and people actually value it you can really own your mistakes and people appreciate you owning it you can be vulnerable and you don't get shamed and punished for it because most of us don't experience this as children so it's the it's the intention the deepest intention of the work is to redefine uh, organizations so that they become places where where people they literally become more whole inside themselves. That's the, that, mm. that's that's what drives us as as a, as an organization. Yeah, I love that, and I love the what you you said about organizations of being places of healing versus places of of suffering. Yeah. Uh, that is such a powerful intention. So 
Michael, if somebody has never, you know, done any kind of mindfulness practice, not read anything about it, where would you where would you tell people to start? What how do you make this tangible, actionable? What's what's the one thing that you think, you know, if you were to start somewhere, start here. And if there's maybe one practice to experiment with, try this one. Yeah. So two answers. The most obvious is you can, there's multiple apps. We've got a great app, but there's, you know, there's lots of great apps out there now. And, you know, uh, Headspace, 10% Happier, Insight Timer, our app, Awaken Mind. Um, our, by the way, just for people's info, our app, Awaken Mind, Awaken Mind is very emphasized on the developmental style of mindfulness. It's, an, it's, an, it's a group of practices that we give leaders to grow, not to just be calm. Our, our orientation is not mental health and calmness. Our orientation is growth. Um, and then just to meditate a little bit each day, like five or 10 minutes a day is a great start and then become curious. I will say, however, in, in deepest integrity, it's not enough. It is extremely important to find a good teacher. It just is. It's just because the, it's not because the practice is complex. Mindfulness practice is actually quite simple as we've described, you know, focus of attention when, when difficult mm-hmm. things arise, feel into them. There's a set of practices. You can learn all of that on the app. The tricky part is that the mind is so delusional and so committed to its ignorance. And it's because it's, and that's a horrible way of saying it's committed to comforting us. So, you know, um, it's like if if my only go-to to deal with my anxiety is to eat chocolate cake, if you take my chocolate cake away from me, I get pretty, you know, I have to face things that I want. So therefore I, I tell myself, ah, that chocolate cake's okay today. We're so good at the rationalization, the justification that we, we, we kind of trick ourselves. And it's super useful to have a skillful mindfulness teacher because they can see what you're not seeing. Um, yeah. Now, I will say this, though, on the last word in that is never trust any teachers, you know, because uh, they the teach us that there's just the world is littered with abusive teachers. So, yes, trust teachers, but only to a degree where where they are helping you author your own experience. They're helping you investigate your own experience. They're not telling you how you should be experiencing things. That's dangerous. They're not telling you how mm-hmm. you should live. They're inviting you into an inquiry. They're giving you skills, but they're inviting you into more curiosity around what your life's producing. And, yeah. and so then- seek the teacher who's really supporting you to own your own learning rather than being the guru that seems to have all the answers and, and give them to you. Exactly. And the second mark of choosing a good teacher is, are they ethical? Like if there's any ethical doubt, run a mile. And they, and again, I say this tragically because there are people in this field who are ethically, uh, they have so much wisdom and then they use that wisdom to their advantage and then they actually act unethically. That's the other bottom line is that ethics and values and virtues matter. They really matter. And that's another test um, of, you know, is this person live, does this person live a virtuous life? Do the, do the way they conduct themselves is virtuous. And it's good old basic virtue, right? They're kind, they're compassionate, they're honest, they're respectful. Um, that matters. It really matters. Yeah. So practice at least five minutes a day um, and look for a good ethical teacher yes. who can good be ethical, a good mirror. A good teacher and, and, and also don't expect results. Now, this is the weirdest thing to say. <laughs> Because one of the, this is an example of the tricky mind is 
the mind plays a game called the, what we call the when-then game or the if-only game. The, the when I meditate, then I'm going to be more present, then all the goodies and life will, and I'll, or then when I'm more one more step above in the ladder of growth, I'm, then I'll be more happy, etc. The, the irony is, as soon as you're in that thinking, you're not present anymore. This is the tricky yeah. part. It's like pre being present is quite a radical thing because it's like I'll practice. It's almost like this. If you're going to practice mindfulness, practice 10 minutes a day and don't have any regard if it's working or not working or it's not anything in your life for six yeah, months. Yeah. It's a little bit. So let go of your attachment to outcome. Let All go outcomes. of the need to perform. Exactly. And then the irony is, is that's where you get the best result. It's so weird. But it's a bit like a lot of people have these ridiculous expectations of mindfulness. I've been, I've been practicing mindfulness five minutes a day. My life hasn't changed. That would be like someone saying, I've been doing five minutes of exercise a day and still I'm continuing with all my other habits. And it's like, it just hasn't made any difference in my life. Exercise is junk and rubbish. It's like, what? No. Yes. I, I will post a few resources, including a lot of your work in the, in the episode notes and the apps you, you talked about as well. So one last question to close us, Michael. Um, how are you keeping yourself uh, honest? How are you keeping yourself, um, you know, walking your, your talk? Because you yeah. are, in turn, a teacher supporting others' growth. Yeah. So what, what's your practice for keep on, keeping on walking the path? Yeah. Um, I'd say I have two dominant and philosophical practices. I'm not talking about just meditating. They are... My first practice is as soon as I feel any kind of victim story in my mind, like I'm a victim of my wife, I'm a victim of my children, I'm a victim of my clients. You know, whenever there's any quality of victim story in my mind, I have this disciplined practice of looking to where I can own it and how I'm creating it, right? That's one of my deepest practices. It's like no victim here, right? The second thing that, that I found, and that I have this term we teach our clients called what's my part in this? You know, like, mm. oh, I'm not getting enough love in my marriage. Okay, well, what's my part in this? Oh, my children are not blah, blah, blah. What's my part in this, right? It's a hard question to answer, but it's a deep commitment to that because I have this deep conviction that if until there's ownership, growth is technically impossible to happen. Until there's accountability, you haven't even, you, it's like you haven't even got in the, if you're trying to swim, you haven't even got in the water yet until there's accountability. As long as you're entertaining stories of its victim and someone else's fault, there's no growth. And the second thing, the most dominant practice of my life is, is being values-based. So, and I treat values as a growth instrument, not as an image management. I stand for integrity. I, I look at the subject, my two favorite ones are kindness and, and honesty are my two core practices, um, along with the ownership practice. And I begin to, I use them as a way to keep examining my life as to where I'm out of integrity, where I'm not quite. And I also have a very committed practice to my team to be ruthless on me, like ruthless on me and I regularly ask them how am I going is have I had any unkind moments have I um because I don't I think I see the perfection of a value like kindness or a value like or virtue like honesty I see them as a, a magnificent path to growth because integrity for example goes from the understanding at, at the lower levels of development as doing the right thing right that's the sort of classic understanding of it and as we evolve more and more it becomes 
and understanding that integrity is the root to complete wholeness and the absence of all suffering. It's like, it's how I recover all the shattered parts of my being. And I start re, re, regathering into presence and I start feeling whole. And the word integrity has got it. The word means to, to be whole without cracks. And so the, the very meaning of the virtue shifts and changes and becomes an invitation to growth instead of a brand. I stand mm. for integrity. And so I think bringing that mindfulness and growth to values is, is so precious because there is no ever reason why you didn't follow your value other than it's your own. I wouldn't use the word fault advisedly, but it's your own. If you're not in responsibility, it's your own responsibility. And in that, then you begin to see what fears drove me there, what assumptions drove me there. And just in that simplicity is how I'm deeply committed to, to that in my own life. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And it did, uh, when I first met you, I think this last piece that you talked about how you are led by your values and kind of calling yourself out when you feel like you're not aligned with your values and your actions and your values are not aligned uh, really struck me. And I think there's so much wisdom um, in having a disciplined practice to check in on, on that alignment which is something I and I'm sure many others can just take and, and you know, as another practice for us, what are some values that are important for people? And are we living them? Are we actually embodying that value? And who yeah. are the mirrors, the honest mirrors around us to tell us that you're actually not showing up the way you think you're showing up? And to know that when they tell you that you're going to be angry with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get ready, get ready yeah, for yeah, them. And then, and then you're going to know you have to stop that and you have to look within, oh my God. And you sometimes you wish, why did I empower these people to give me so much feedback? Because I'm not enjoying looking at this thing in myself now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Michael, so much for your wisdom. I've learned so much and I, I hope it's it's opened up uh, pathways for inquiry uh, for people. And I'm very grateful, not just for you on the podcast, but for you in the world. I'm I'm happy, grateful that organizations get to learn from from your wisdom. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to see more, more of it grow. Exactly back at you. And actually, I'm going to say this on your podcast is that I'm, uh, we have in our plans to start a podcast. We don't have a podcast, but I want you to please be one of my first guests because what struck me in this conversation is that you interviewing me in a sense, but I like, as it's gone on, I'm more and more curious about now what would Alice, I'm really curious about Alice's, and I'm like, no, 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 I'll try and stay with the sort of descriptive, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I definitely would like to interview you too. I would love to continue the conversation, Michael. And I'm sure we'll have many others offline as well um, yeah. as we go forward. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. For being here with me. Thank you. And thanks for those of you who've stayed with us the whole process. I hope you've been as inspired by this conversation with Michael Bunting as I have. There is so much wisdom that he's shared with us. Um, it's even hard to zoom in on the key things um, and maybe different people will take away different ideas from this. But a couple of things that have stuck with me are this incredibly subtle but important difference between concentration mindfulness, using mindfulness as a tool to ignore the hard stuff, the difficult stuff, breaking your concentration 
versus insight mindfulness. Using mindfulness as a tool to invite in with curiosity all the tough feelings that we normally run away from and the benefits of doing that. Um, I also deeply resonated with Michael's aspiration to see organizations becoming places of healing versus places of suffering. And also, hopefully, you'll take and experiment some of the practices that he has suggested, such as the 10 minutes of mindfulness every day or finding an ethical teacher or looking at your values and the way they can become guidelines to keep you honest and keep you embodying the integrity that you want to bring to the world. You'll find much more about Michael's work in the episode notes. And until next time, stay conscious and stay wise.